0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the October 8th, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Patricia Calhoun, sitting in for Dominic DiZutti. Thanks for joining us. COVID vaccinations remain in the headlines this week. After issuing a mandate making it easier to fire unvaccinated employees, Governor Polis's administration might scale back to requiring only 90% of employees be vaccinated to allow for religious exemptions. Meanwhile, CU Health required patients that required that unvaccinated people will not receive organ transplants. Sitting in my former chair, bringing unusual sense to it, David Coppel, <laughs> how do you read these?
1: Well, I've been on this show since 1998, and this is the first time I've ever been allowed to sit in this chair. So, <laughs> thank you for whatever you did to help me get this this temporary promotion. Uh, with CU, you can definitely understand their point of view that kidneys don't grow on trees. If we're going to give somebody a a scarce kidney, we want it to be somebody who's got a good chance of surviving. And generally, somebody who's the baseline of having the uh, vaccine versus not, the person who's not, has about double the chance of of dying uh, from COVID. So that's reasonable so far. But what they're not considering is which is very odd for a, a medical facility, is natural immunity. And the particular person to whom they refused a kidney transplant is someone who is tested positive for COVID and has antibodies. There's a new study uh, recently came out from Maccabi uh, Health Services in Israel, where they have lots of data and lots of vaccinations. And what they found is that natural immunity you know, from if you ever had a positive test that was genuine, that you've got natural immunity, that is basically double the protective value of the artificial immunity created by vaccines. Now, that said, if you've got natural immunity, you add on a vaccine, so much the better, according to the study. But I don't understand why they're kicking somebody out who's actually got better immunity uh, than she would have if she were vaccinated.
0: Wow, that's much more than I have said in 30 years in that chair. Ed C. Lover, Denver Business Journal. What do you think about Polis's new, the administration may be pulling back to 90 percent?
2: Well, it's almost a little bit surprising, especially given the success that you've seen in other public agencies uh, in, in you know, pushing the vaccine mandate and getting higher than expected numbers. I mean, you've got like, Denver, you have the Aurora School Districts. I mean, they're all pushing 98, 99 percent. So I think what we're seeing over and over again is that when an employer... Uh, requires their their workforce to get vaccines, and that is to be very clear what's happening, even though these are government entities here, these are employers of people who are saying, you must get the vaccine to continue working for us. Most people who complain about it will, at the last minute, decide to get that vaccine because their job means more than this particular stand. Um, I, so, I guess I am a little surprised. I mean, what's going to be the bigger flashpoint here as we see more and more governmental employees getting on board with this is how far government is going to try to extend its reach into the private sector? We see that with the lawsuit that was filed about a week ago, uh, with the contracting organizations saying you can't outsource this mandate to us to enforce in Denver. Here, uh, we're going to see that with the legal challenges that are going to come up to Joe Biden's 100-person uh, uh, vaccine mandate that employers must get. Um, not really understanding the difference between a 99-person and a 100-person company, and while one should be protected and one other shouldn't, but. As far as Polis goes, I guess I'm just surprised to see he's not shooting for the moon because other agencies are getting it when they shoot for it.
0: Elena Alvarez
3: from Axios, were you surprised by Polos' move? A little bit, and it's because of what he did early on in the pandemic. His approach was really focused on personal uh, responsibility, and that approach uh, garnered a lot of praise from conservatives. But right now, we see the tables have really turned um, in his tough stance right now is drawing a lot of backlash from conservatives who are now calling on him to reverse the vaccine mandate um, and to uh, apologize to frontline workers. So there are some real uh, political implications uh, for the 2022 election um, based on his decisions right now and I think we're kind of seeing him respond to that that pressure.
0: And rounding out our table, Jesse Paul of the Colorado Sun. What do you think about where we are right now in Colorado? 90% the University of Colorado with the transplant got a lot of national attention this, this week.
4: Yeah, you know, I think it's important to recognize that there are rural hospitals and rural health care providers who are complaining about the mandates and saying we're losing so many workers that so we can't function. So I think you're seeing some kind of movement uh, in response to those kind of things. I agree with, with Elena. I mean, this is going to be a huge uh, political attack line, I think, for Republicans. I'm not quite sure how much it's going to land with voters, if it's going to be something that, you know, people are going to go to the ballot box and say I'm not voting for the governor because of this. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the way that this entire story about the uh, transplant surface was through the Colorado Republican Party and a Republican state lawmaker who, you know, really put the governor on blast about this policy.
0: Well, this will not be the last time we're talking about vaccinations. But right now we're talking about the latest version of the Colorado Senate and House maps that were released by the Redistricting Commission this week. Both maps show that Democrats sorry, um, should be able to maintain majorities in both the House and the Senate. But meanwhile, Colorado Common Cause is considering joining Latino groups in battling the current congressional district map that was sent to the Colorado Supreme Court last week. At sea level, how do you see this fight coming down? And they're not going to be the only ones fighting.
2: They're not, but I'm a little surprised to see where this angst is coming from right now. Um, I mean, and, and I'm going to use numbers here that, that were supplied by the Colorado Sun, and I want to give a shout out uh, to my colleague and his, uh, his colleagues for doing really the most thorough work on this so far. But when you look at the new 8th CD that's been created, 39% uh, Hispanic population. That's the largest in the state. When you look at the state, House and State Senate maps, that's about a third of each chamber that is a a district that is at least 25% Hispanic. Um, I I guess it just surprises me to see that this line of attack, you are not hearing the Hispanic voice enough, is what's surfacing right now. And and it it frankly kind of points out the the problems in this issue. I mean, we thought we had cured everything by saying we're going to take a... uh, a nonpartisan commission, and we're going to have them redraw it. Well, generally, the nonpartisan commission is only attractive to the party that's not in power. Uh, those that would have otherwise had the ability to draw the map are going to be concerned about it, and that's what we're seeing right now. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a member of the court. I don't know where how the court's going to come down. It just seems to me that this is an odd line for a commission that has taken into account this issue very well
0: no good deed goes unpunished, as we've seen by these commissions that were supposed to be so nonpartisan. Elena, how do you see this coming down?
3: I'm really trying to just keep up uh, right now. Everything uh, is so in flux. Um, I think what matters most to me at this point is what happens with the court, um, because everything is so new. What the court decides, how it handles this, uh, these lawsuits, and ultimately what it decides, I think will really set the benchmark for the future, um, and so a lot rides on this when everything actually settles and is official.
0: <laughs> if it ever settles. It ever Jesse, settles. you spend a lot of time at the State House. What are the responses there?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think we've been kind of following this arc throughout the process about where Democrats have kind of fallen on this. Amendments Y and Z, you know, were initially kind of something that was born out of a Republican uh, mindset. Democrats got on board because they were worried about whether or not it would pass and what that would mean for them. They wouldn't have some influence in the process. But that happened just before Democrats took over state government and picked up more power than they've had in 100 years. So they're uh, kicking themselves, I think, a little bit about how the maps have turned out. The congressional map looks a little less favorable for them. Uh, Of course, as you mentioned, the statehouse maps look pretty good. I think they're going to keep their majorities there. Uh, The Supreme Court, I think, is going to be really interesting to see how they respond to the congressional map. Someone was pointing out to me the other day that Two justices actually have argued this issue before, before they became Supreme Court justices. They worked on the issue. Uh, so they're very familiar with this. I think the consensus, though, is that they're probably going to not change too much. Remember that the congressional map was sent to the Supreme Court with an 11-to-1 vote. So there's uh, a lot of support there. It's going to be hard for them to over uh, to, to send that back unless they have a pretty good reason to ask for some specific changes.
0: And, David, I know you're sorry you're <laughs> not going to be in Boebert's uh, <laughs> district. How do you see the rest of this working?
1: On the the congressional map, the challengers have two ways to win, both of which look very unlikely. One is it would violate the Voting Voting Rights Act if the commission had intentionally tried to dilute uh, minority votes, like if you had a Hispanic town that would, you know, uh, elect someone Hispanic and then they split that town into three districts where Hispanics are the minority. And that's obviously now what happened here for the reasons Ed said. Uh, The only actually really competitive seat in in the new uh, congressional delegation is that eighth district where Hispanics have a, a, a very major influence. They could also try to convince the Colorado Supreme Court that it's uh, the map is an abuse of discretion, but that's a high standard to meet. Their chances are, I think, slender to the point of almost frivolous. On that, on the the state house maps, as people have said, um, the the Constitution requires that the com- uh, commission try to draw competitive seats. Um, they didn't seem to get very far on, on that particular aspect of their mandate because as the map exists now even if the Republicans win every swing competitive district the Democrats will still have a comfortable uh, majority in both houses of uh, the state legislature.
0: We'll be talking about this one again, but not right now. Our own Ed Sealever broke the story this week that the Downtown Denver Partnership has a new CEO, Courtney Garrett, who is currently the CEO of Downtown Dallas. Garrett takes over for Tammy Doerr, who held the position for 16 years. Elena, how do you see this affecting downtown?
3: Well, I talked to um, some of our colleagues at Axios Dallas who are really familiar with her tenure. Um, and it really comes across that Denver has gained a real star. Um, she brought a lot of growth uh, and development to downtown Dallas. So that's hopeful for Denver. But I think what Ed highlighted in his uh, story, which is what matters most, is that she's coming at a really critical time for downtown Denver um, at a time when, you know, it's been crippled by the pandemic, uh, vacancies and downtown buildings are still up, passenger traffic is down. Um, and so w- what's more adding to this pressure is that uh, downtown is home to some of the city's most persistent problems, including violent crime and homelessness. In fact, um, the CEO of the restaurant chain Teriyaki Madness told Business Den this week that they actually closed their downtown location in large part due to rampant homelessness um, in the area. And so she certainly will have her, her hands full, that's for sure. Um, but I think the big picture, as Ed you know, rightfully reported, is that there's a really big shakeup happening right now in Colorado's um, business uh, group leaders, among Colorado's business group leaders, um, and whether that timing is coincidental is still yet to be seen. I think,
0: or or maybe it shows how mo- how fun it isn't to run one of those things during a pandemic. Jesse, you normally focus on the state, focus down into Denver. What's this going to mean?
4: Yeah, I I uh, look at the big picture. You know, kind of building off what Elena was saying. You know, JJ Met now is taking over the. Uh, uh, Denver Metro Chamber, too, and so it'll be interesting to see kind of how that influence plays out. At the Capitol, I can tell you that that group, you know, obviously has a lot of influence. You know, Ed and I are talking to those folks all the time. J.J. Ament uh, is a Republican, ran for state treasurer a few years ago, and I'm kind of curious to see, you know, how much Democrats listen to that group, listen to what he has to say just because of his uh, partisan lean, but, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that just as like a, as a Denver resident, you know, I, I, I avoid downtown right now, so I, anything that people can... Uh, do to get me down there, please. I'd I'd like to come back.
0: (laughs) Well, we're having lunch downtown today. David, so what do you think about these changes at the Chamber and at the Denver Partnership?
1: Well, at the Partnership, the the new head uh, uh, says she wants to keep on doing what she'd done in Dallas, which is... Uh, what is called tax increment financing, which is a fancy way of the government borrowing money on behalf of business without the voters being able to exercise their constitutional right to vote on new government debt. And sometimes that's used for you know, benign things like uh, street improvements in a place that's going to attract more traffic. Other times, it's used to actually pay the construction costs for the developers. I don't think Downtown's problem is that there's not enough taxpayer money going into the pockets of the construction industry. The problem is the violent criminals, the mobs, and the violently insane. And that's not a welfare, uh, a corporate welfare problem. It's a public safety problem that the mayor has uh, conspicuously uh, refused to seriously address.
0: And Ed Seelever, the man who broke the story, tell us what we really need to know.
2: Well, what you're getting in Courtney Garrett uh, is is a lot of what we've seen in Tammy Doerr for the last 16 years. So if you like what Doerr's done, the idea of bringing residents back to downtown, uh, which has kept it a more 24-hour vibe, uh, the idea of trying to make it a more diverse economy downtown, that's a lot of what Garrett says she wants to do. Th- the trick, though, is that neither Doerr nor Garrett was ever prepared for a downtown that would empty out for its workers, which would leave massive vacancies, particularly among shops formerly occupied by national chains, that now realize they can get all their money in the suburbs uh, and don't have to pay the high dollar rents downtown when people aren't working down there. I think that's the biggest question now, is how do you bring that life back downtown? Because I think once you start bringing more people downtown, you will see a little bit of a downturn in the crime, in some of the homelessness, uh, as more people get down there, um, but but she's really got to dig into this. Okay, now what do I do to reset a downtown that has emptied out? And I think that's most of what we're going to be talking about over the next year uh, in terms of the change or the rechange of downtown Denver.
0: And we'll be talking about that one again too. But meanwhile, a proposal to ban flavored tobacco products was was kicked back to committee this week after two hours of heated debate at a Denver City council committee. Proponents want to curb the use of tobacco among minors, while opponents question if a ban will really be effective since the products can be purchased online. Jesse, what do you think about the flavored tobacco
4: issue? It's it's not a new uh, question, right? So state lawmakers have considered bringing a bill to, to do a similar uh, ban on state de- or to ban on uh, flavored tobacco products, uh, and and it never really gets anywhere. So it's kind of interesting to see. You know, I think obviously if you had a statewide ban, it would make it more difficult. But even when folks talk about things like you know increasing tobacco taxes, uh, opponents of these kind of things just say, look, I, you know. Wyoming's an hour away, New Mexico's not very far so people will just drive you know, and, and pick up the things that are banned anyways. You know, one of the things that I think we've learned at the Capitol in recent years, and, and I don't know how much this is playing out here, is that you know, tobacco industry really still has a lot of clout in Colorado. They can spend a lot of money to to fight things, they can Uh, negotiate behind the scenes, and it's interesting to see whenever these things kind of come up, you know, what kind of high-powered lobbyists get brought on the table, what kind of money gets spent on Facebook ads, on digital ads to fight these things, Um, and and I think it's an issue that you're going to continue to see at the ballot box, at the Capitol, at at city councils across the state.
0: Well, one of the lobbying groups that's been involved is the hookah industry. I know, David, you're very, very (laughs) active in the hookah industry, but that's one of the things they're looking for an exemption on now.
1: Well, I'm hoping after the show we can all go out and do some kind of investigation of it. And, and right, and and people... Some people from the cultures they come from share hookahs like at, after work, and the tobacco flavoring in that is a really big part of things. And you know, I, I haven't seen a lot of uh, eighth graders showing up at the, the hookah lounges. Not that I go there, but if I would, I bet I bet they don't. They'll check ID at the door. It's not a problem of use for you know, for for minors. So the, cracking down on the hookah people is just bigotry and exclusion for its own sake. Uh, as for Tobacco. Let's remember, cigarettes, hookahs, cigars, pipes are made. You smoke. You smoke tobacco. Vaping is not. Vaping fluid is typically derived from eggplant, which, like al- like tobacco, contains nicotine, but is much, 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 much safer. So, to the extent you're discouraging vaping you are discouraging a lot of current smokers from switching to something that they might enjoy more because of the flavoring uh, and drastically reduce uh, their health risks. So the Denver City Council plan is, among other things, a thing in the long run that will increase tobacco deaths.
0: Eggplant. I never knew that, yeah. Ed C. Lover, What can you share with us about flavored tobacco?
1: Well, other than the influence
2: of big hookah, I think <laughs> one of the uh, the interesting things that this debate is uh, going to have to turn on is, you know, how big of an issue is this going to be? A recent study showed vaping went way down last year when teens were at home, or teen vaping at least went way down last year. When teens were at home, they were not gathering in groups. Uh, Smoking, while of course it has been leaned upon heavily, is also an act that is going down somewhat of the smoker's own volition. It is just not a societal requisite like it used to be in the 60s and 70s to smoke anymore, and it has gone away over time is a newer construct, and the question is, if we A, is it bad enough that we need to regulate it? And that's a good question that Dave brings up here that I'm not going to try to answer from a medical standpoint. Uh, And and B, uh, if we regulate it, is that going to accelerate the change or is this change going to happen naturally? I mean, to me, vaping seems like it's just that next quick thing that may be coming after smoking when smoking itself is tending to go away over time. So um, I think those are the things, uh, there's no answers in there. Those are the things the Denver City Council has to consider Uh, And maybe the question of whether it's time to jump in uh, from the government standpoint is a premature question as we continue to watch vaping trends and whether or not they continue to decrease on their own. Elena, where do you think this is going to go with city council?
3: I think there is a battle ahead for sure. They're going to meet again on the 27th to hash things out, propose new amendments. Um, But the two ordinance sponsors right now aren't supportive of Big changes whatsoever. Um, and council members that are opposed to this proposal want big changes. They want to either allow exceptions for hookah lounges, and they also want to be given real critical or real um, uh, convincing evidence that policies uh, that have been similar policies that have been passed elsewhere in other cities and states are actually getting to the heart of the youth vaping issue. And right now, the evidence is still really murky. In fact, um, in May, uh, a study from uh, Yale, the Yale School of Public Health found that San Francisco's law banning flavored tobacco products actually might have uh, doubled the odds of underage smoking. So it had a backward, the opposite effect. Um, and other council members are also thinking a smarter way to, to go about targeting um, you know, underage smoking is. is targeting the vendors who are selling um, to miners Right now, city officials estimate about 22% of retailers are um, out of compliance. Um, So I think council members, the majority of them, aren't supportive of these two council members' proposal right now, so I think they're in for an uphill battle. And they're going to have another
0: interesting battle next month because now the uh, proponents of decriminalizing mushrooms are coming back to try to push that. You know, Denver was the first American city to decriminalize mushrooms in May 2019. So if it, we've got a little time if anyone wants to weigh in on that. Or otherwise, we're going to disgrace. So, Juan, David, what's your disgrace?
1: Juan Marciano, Aurora City Councilman, uh, who after the council voted against some global warming uh, bill, uh, called his opponents and Republicans a sadistic death cult and added that Republicans are the most dangerous group that has ever existed on planet Earth. Um, i suggest the councilman, besides having uh, childish rhetoric appropriate for an angry and ignorant 11-year-old, might try reading a little bit of history and then he'd learn about the Chinese Communist Party, which has murdered about 90 million people, including the Uyghurs against it, as whom presently perpetrating genocide, the uh, Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which comes in number two for the most mass murders in history, and then at number three with the bronze medal is the National Socialist German Workers' Party uh, led by Adolf Hitler. All of them, and many others, are in fact much more dangerous than the Republican Party, and I think the Republican Party led by Trump is not a very good thing, Uh, but they they are even close to uh, most dangerous all time.
0: Again, you've just learned more from David in one Speech than for me in 30 years. Ed Sealever, what's your disgrace of the week?
2: He and I did not coordinate. I just want to say that in advance here. Um, but uh, this week, the UN uh, voted to uh, put a human rights monitor on the situation in Afghanistan. Now, I mean, the, the program is probably going to be as useless and ineffective as most things the UN does. But what was very interesting was the three countries that voted against it Venezuela, Russia, and China. Now, Venezuela and Russia are human rights disgraces along the lines of Iran and North Korea. So that shouldn't be a surprise. But the fact that China is now voting against something as simple as a human rights monitoring about Afghanistan tells you that this is an increasingly dangerous country that we need to monitor. Now, we should have known that already between, as Dave referenced, the Uyghur slave labor and forced brainwashing and some of the other moves that they've taken. But small things like this really need to raise our alarm bells and say, we've got to prepare much more for a bigger clash that is coming with China.
3: Elena. Uh, Colorado is moving in the wrong direction when it comes to COVID. So our COVID hospitalizations right now are the highest they've been since January. And we're one of only 10 states in the U.S. that saw COVID infections increase over the last two weeks.
0: And ICU beds dropping availability, too, so it's not a very happy way we're going into the fall. Jesse, what's your disgrace?
4: Well, everybody went big picture, but uh, I just came from the Colorado Capitol, where Ed and I share an office in the basement, and unfortunately uh, it seems like a rodent died in there, which is, which is my personal disgrace <laughs> for the week, and I'm, I'm very focused on that at the moment.
0: And by rodent, you're not referring to a specific politician. No, no, no politicians.
4: <laughs> All
0: right, well, we're going to talk about things that are nice, and you've got plenty of time, David.
1: Well, we are about to be celebrating Mother Cabrini Day in Colorado, which I think was a, a great resolution to the long-running Columbus Day controversy. Um, Mother Cabrini is an Italian-American closely associated with Colorado, and part of the impetus for Columbus Day you know, back in the early 1970s was, was to honor Italian-Americans. So that gets us uh, more, more precisely focused there. The anti-Columbus people sometimes made ridiculous arguments as if the fact that, that he explored and found, landed in the West Indies makes him responsible for all the, the, the malfeasance of other people hundreds of years later. And the fact was he was a great navigator, one of, the, one of the world's great explorers of all time. And it's also true that critics are wrong to say that the Indians, as he mistakenly called them, uh, thinking he'd made it to India, were all like living peacefully and happily. Some were, uh, on the other hand, many, like the Arawaks of the Caribbean, were a vicious, uh, bloodthirsty, highly violent, violent tribe. But the fact is Columbus also encountered the Taino Indians, who were basically peaceful and nice and did capture some of them as slaves. So for that reason, I think it's uh, especially appropriate that we replaced uh, Columbus with a Colorado.
0: Okay, and as it turns out, we don't have that much time. So Ed, go ahead say It'll be something the last nice. Last time
1: you tell Dave we have a lot of time. I know.
2: Um, uh, among the many Colorado uh, business leaders who are retiring, uh, Phil Kalen announced this week that he is stepping down from Pinnacle Assurance uh, in March. Uh, I've had the chance to cover Phil uh, as part of the healthcare industry for years, and know that he is one of the more visionary leaders, someone who's always thinking the next step ahead. Uh, and his presence in the healthcare industry in general is going to be missed because he challenged assumptions and tried to move forward on them.
3: Elena,
0: you're, you're something
3: nice. I am um, wishing a happy birthday to RTD. Um, the, this week, the transit agency celebrated its 27th anniversary of providing light rail services in Denver, and I think that's a very important service.
0: Wow, that's impressive. Maybe their first nice here. And Jesse?
4: <laughs> well, as much as it pains me to say it as a Steelers fan, I have to say that the Broncos look impressive, and I'm pretty nervous about this weekend. So that, my, my backhanded compliment is they don't look too bad this year. So I'm impressed with the Broncos.
0: Well, thanks, and I would like to thank all of you for tuning in every week. We love having the fans who watch Colorado Inside Out and put up with us and greet us out in public, so uh, be, be gentle when you see me this week. That's all the time we have left at Colorado Public Television, um, except that, look, now I have a message. I'm your host <laughs> for PBS 12. I'm Patricia Calhoun. Thanks for watching. Thanks for putting up with me, and good night. <laughs>
4: Oh, uh-huh.